Across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour with Alan Alder, Sue Bailey and me, Matt Bentman. Today, a fish butchery, restaurant and deli opening in Mill Road by Richard Stokes, ex of Three Horseshoes in Maddingley and Jay Scrimshaw of Gorilla Kitchen. After our feature four weeks ago about what it's like being reviewed by a national newspaper, we hear from Tim Haywood about what it's like reviewing restaurants for a national newspaper. Lockdown is proving to be a trying time for cider makers, so we speak with Crane's Drinks about how they're surviving. Café Abantu has begun a series of Saturday pop-ups we hear all about them. And as usual, we have a lot of local food and drink news and some jobs to apply for too. Let's begin with some extraordinarily good news. Richard Stokes and Jay Scrimshaw are opening in Mill Road. When Richard, an alumnus of River Café, was in charge of the Three Horseshoes, the Independent says it is one of the best restaurants in England. The Guardian described the food as brilliant. Jay Scrimshaw is well known to all of us as the man in Gorilla Kitchen, but before then he worked to Richard at the Three Horseshoes before going on to being the man in charge of the highly prestigious Bibendum in Chelsea, then Shea Bruce in Wandsworth, and the Pheasant in Keystone, where he won the Best British Restaurant Award on Gordon Ramsay's Channel 4 programme. Now Richard and Jay are back together, opening up a place in Mill Road in which fish will be the main, but not the only, attraction. I met Richard and Jay close to Mill Road and asked them all about it. Richard first. We're going to have a butcher's shop with a grab-and-go counter and then seating for up to 28 people. Seating will be mostly round the counter. A bit like Barrafina in London. But why is it a butcher and not a fishmonger? A monger just means to sell, so you can be anything monger. But we're going to treat the fish much more like you'd treat meat, really. So fish butcher, we want to use the whole animal, the whole fish. So it just makes sense to call it a fish butcher. And the method used to kill the fish will be more akin to that used for meat as well. We're going to have fish that's um, brain spiked as well. Um, We've got quite a few people who would do that for us. Right, let me, let me just come to, go to Jay. Uh, so it's called ikijimi, which is a traditional method of killing fish. So they're more humane, same as like they do in the meat industry. It's all about making sure the animal, the fish, dies in the most relaxed way so it doesn't affect the muscles. So the fish are killed individually then? They're not just left to... Individually. Yeah, all, all our fish are going to be line caught, so it's not, they're not going to be trawlers, so there's not going to be hundreds of fish that they need to brain spike. It's going to be one fish at a time spike. and We're going to have deliveries every day. We'll be using several boats. And you're going to be selling the fish to people, you know, like the traditional fishmonger yes, sells yes. fish. Yes, completely. So people can come in and buy a, a fish. Yep, um, they, they can do that, of course, yeah. And we're going to be doing some deliveries. Uh, we can have some pickups as well. We can um, produce fish boxes, um, takeaway DIY boxes. Uh, we want to try and make the business as COVID safe as possible going forward. So we've got four or five strings to our bow. So it's not going to, just going to be a fish butchers. It's not going to be just a restaurant. We want a business that's sustainable. And what sort of fish? The traditional <coughs> cod haddock? We're going to try and steer away from the, the sort of cods and the haddocks and stuff and try to get start utilising a bit more grey mullets. Pollocks. Pollocks. Ling. You know, there's a lot of wrasse. There's so many fish that we just don't have on our radars, um, which, um, so we're going to try and champion the sort of the underdog, as it were, rather than the everyone's favourite, you know, cod and haddock. Yeah. You might be able to get them some days. Everything's going to be dry. Um, fish likes to live in water, but once it's dead, it doesn't like water. It's not a, a, water's not a friend of the fish. 
It's been something that's been done in Japan for many, many years. I think we're going to be probably one of the first fishmongers, fish butcher, um, to, to have everything dry. And the menu? Possibly is endless. We, we have written down hundreds and hundreds of ideas of what we can be done, but the menus haven't been finalised as yet. So what are some of the possibilities? So the restaurant side of things is going to have a bit of an Asian feel. So there will be a lot of raw stuff, you know, so maybe the sashimis or crudos if you're Italian. It's going to be simplistic. It's not going to be complicated. It's going to maybe have two or three items on the plate. You know, have, we're going to be working with some good farmers around locally around Cambridge, so we'll be championing the vegetables, the seasonal veg, as well as the fish. It's going to be simple. It's going to be, you might just get a fish and a sauce, and that's it, in yeah. one course. And there might be just the fish and a veg, or a veg and a fish sauce, and no fish. You know, have some vegetable courses, have some vegetable grab-and-goes. Like I said, the menu just hasn't been decided. I think it's safe it's, to say fish soup will be on every day, and, and then oysters <laughs> will be on every day and uh, we're going to be curing our own fish as well and making gravlax and we're going to probably run some boxes, Christmas boxes we're going to have um, some of our deli items as well we want to make um, fish pâtés and riettes mm. as well um, so again utilising the whole fish yeah. if the skin was taken off you could make almost like you know prawn crackers out of it you know there's yeah everything has got possibilities you know you, we need to utilise everything of that fish because so much of it is thrown away you know, most people, you know, you get your fish, you take your fillets off, and that's all you got, and that's probably, I don't know, 50 60% of the fish goes in the bin. Right, we can so dry, what, we can what, dry what bones for dashi, <coughs> we can make our own dashi, um, so we can dry the bones for that, we can smoke bones for that. Um, we just want to say the head, the, you know, the heads can be, can be made into fish soup, you take the cheeks out, you can do stuff with the eyeballs, you know, you've got the livers. Yeah. There's just everything, everything we, you know, everything we use from an animal, from a cow or a lamb. It's the same for um, a fish. We just need to change, you know, once, you know, being a chef, cooking offal, you know, from, you know, from liver and heart and so on, you know, that they've always been really hard to push people to have. But over time, you know, grandparents used to eat them. That we're now slowly starting to, it's, it's just changing public perception of yeah. what you should, what you can eat. So there'll be grab and go, lunch, brunch and an evening meal. So when will the fish butchery open? Early spring. The, we're thinking that the fish butchery will be open every day. We'll probably do brunches on Sunday lunch, Saturday lunch, sort of breakfasty type things. Probably Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday evenings and then and lunches and then the grab and go will always be, people can always come in and get stuff to take home or eat there and then. There's a lot to this place. Jay summarises it. So, we, so it's, we're going to be the fish shop. We're going to have the grab-and-go items. Yeah, there's going to be, at lunchtime, you can come in and there might be, you know, one thing we do every day. So on a Monday, we might say fish soup. On a Friday, it might be half a grilled lobster. Yeah. And there'll be dishes that, they're just one-off dishes that set that day that you can come in, sit down, have like, half a lobster and, and not like off you go. Like the classic plat du jour in the, French, in the French bistros, you know, so everyone will know that Monday will be our um, muscle right. day or you yeah. know, Tuesday will be the best fish burger you'll ever have day. Or yeah. So, so that will be the lunch type stuff. And then, you know, obviously the brunch, the maybe, like I said, just two days a week might just consist of pot of shrimps on toasted crumpets, you know, maybe some eggs and some vegetables. So not, you certainly wouldn't sit down and have a piece of fish for brunch but it will be fishy condiments and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, then, and then the dinner, a set menu, and then the whole DIY kits. There might be a day where we go, right, on a Friday, you know, you can um, come sit, sit talk, come down to the restaurant, pick up a kit, and then you can cook it at home on Saturday. You yeah. know, so it would be like a meal in a box, but you've got to prepare, you know, it'll all be prepared, you've just got to assemble it. They're planning to have some items available before Christmas. Here's Richard with the details. We're going to be doing some fish hampers and some deli items we're going to have a, a deli at the shop as well um, all of, of our homemade items plus um, a few local smokeries are going to be supplying us as well so we're going to have a good selection of, of, of um, deli goods that hopefully by around the second week of December uh, we'll be selling on an individual basis and a, and a hamper basis as well and that will also include oysters as well and our own gravlax to name a couple of things we'll be selling us through Click It, Click it Local uh, so watch that, watch that space for um, Finn Boys Fish Butchery and click it local. And what's going to happen to Gorilla Kitchen? 
Community Kitchen will be business as normal. Yep, I just need to find some people to help me do it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, if all that doesn't lift your lockdown gloom, nothing will. The shop will be called The Fish Butchery. They're setting up their social media at the moment. Look out for Finboys with a hyphen for updates. And The Fish Butchery will be opening in early spring. OK, time for some news now, and let's begin by saying a very happy fourth birthday to the Edge Cafe in Mill Road. Now, they have lived up to their aim of being a great community cafe very well. They're distributing four and a half tonnes of free food a month and hosting up to 15 community groups a week. However, they do really need money to keep going through the tills, so if you're passing, do pop in for a coffee or a flapjack or something. Help them survive. Further towards town, in Mill Road, almost opposite the Sea Tree and Urban Larder, a new organic whole foods, fruit and veg, wine, coffee and so on shop is opening next week. It's called Harvest. They have some jobs available too. We feature them in our jobs section at the end. Bacchanalia in Mill Road and Victoria Road is getting its Christmas beers in and it's had a recent delivery from Belgium with more to come next week. And on the subject of Christmas drinks, the Gog Shop has an English whisky called Norfolk PX in stock. It's matured in Pedro Jimenez sherry casks. If it's beer you're after, Moonshine Brewery's bottled beers can be bought at the Queen's Head in Newton. The top-selling brew is Salomon Stout at 6% ABV. And we'll have more news later in the programme. But now... A couple of editions ago, we heard from Lawrence Butler of Vanderlyle and Tristan Welch of Parker's Tavern about what it's like being reviewed in a national newspaper. But what is it like to be the person doing the reviews? Alan asked Tim Haywood, who does just that for the Financial Times. Tim, when you do uh, restaurant reviews, how do you go about choosing the restaurant? So there's a, there's a bunch of different ways they come through. I, I, keep, a, I keep a list, a target list. And so if I see something of interest uh, in general news or in social media, I'll make a note of it, check it out. Then there's obviously there's a fair amount of press release action with new places opening up. So I hear about those and see, see those and they go on my list. Unlike a lot of people, I don't have to be first in. It's not, it's not, the, it's not a big deal yeah. for me. Really, I mean, I'd probably let most places settle for a few weeks at least before I bother. Some of the ones that you've chosen have been quite... Well, to my eyes, anyway, quite obscure. I mean, there was a Middle Eastern restaurant near Highbury Corner in Islington, which uh, I haven't been to, but I haven't actually visited, haven't seen. But it struck me as you know, not being sort of top of most people's list. People would be surprised, I think, that if you look at what restaurant reviewers actually review in the nationals, very few of them are reviewing Michelin star. I mean, I, I haven't done a Michelin star in two years. And I was trying to think the other day whether Marina or Jay or any of the others had, and I don't think they have. I mean, that sort of stuff is not that relevant to our customers anymore. So we are looking for something that's a little bit different. Um, There are pressures on us. There's there's a a very strong feeling that we should be getting out and trying to to reach other kinds of food, other sort of societal levels, I suppose. And... um, yeah, that, that's that's the that's the idea. So we we do try and make it as as strange as possible, um, and, and I just I, I just like throwing one in occasion that's completely bonkers, because I think that's just really entertaining. So when you're in the restaurant and you've you've got there, how often do they realise that that it's you? You are a reviewer for a national daily of some repute. Depends. London ones, most of them have uh, their PR companies. Um, give them a list of the reviewers, uh, the critics, um, and they provide photographs, recent photographs of us, and they pin those up on the back of the door going through the dining room. Um, and so we could be spotted really, really easily. <laughs> I think I've been reviewing for a year or two before I actually got onto that list, and I was quite proud. A friend of mine, was, um, uh, she was making a film in a restaurant, and she, she texted me and said, Tim, I just, I've just seen your picture on the back of the door. You've arrived, mate. I said, oh, that's, that's great. I'm really proud. I'm really proud. She said, yeah, except what they've written underneath. And I said, well, what was that? They said, looks like Fat Corbin. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had to go back to that. May I say, I don't think that's true. <laughs> I actually had to go back to that restaurant later on to review it. And uh, they knew who I was by that point. And like a shot, they were out all over the place. And it was a very good, very good restaurant, very good review, really enjoyed it. And at the end... 
I said to the very nervous waiter, do you really think I look like fat Jeremy Corbyn? And his face went absolutely ashen, but he still got a good review. But, okay, so you, but you've got to preserve your anonymity before you before you get there. Yeah. So how, how do you go? How do you go about that? I mean, presumably booking under another name. Yeah. So I've I've got. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember how long the list is at the moment. I think I've got about. I've probably got about five names at the moment that I'm currently using to book through. They're all entirely fictional, and you know, not not sort of witty or clever or easy to spot or jokey. Yeah. Uh, they're just you know, that's it. And, and I. I I can set up email addresses very, very quickly. So I just basically, I just have an email address for this new name and set up a booking engine, uh, I've download one of the booking apps uh, in that name and then book it in that name. And I go in and there's, there's no way they'll know it's me um, until they see me or until I put my credit card in at the end of the evening. But when they do spot, it, spot you, does the level of service change or do they take it in their stride normally? I, I've never seen any real evidence of anything sort of jumping about I mean I, I actually was in a restaurant once with a and another very very much more famous restaurant critic who will remain nameless was in the restaurant at the same time um, and it was uh, one of the uh, Corbin and King places and actually the entire restaurant ground to a halt because he was being served everybody was paying special attention to him and nobody else and the other people were getting quite grumpy about it you know they really they, they couldn't get there they couldn't get attention from their waiters because everybody was so nervous about this one guy um so i think it depends on who you are um, i'm quite a, i'm quite low down the down the pecking order for for reviewers i think were you there as a reviewer as well in this restaurant yes yes yeah so did you <laughs> Did your two different, very different experiences uh, show in the in the reviews? <laughs> I think they did, actually. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think things have changed recently, obviously, because we're not we're not really interested in doing bad reviews at the moment. Uh, people don't want to read them. Um, it would be very unsupportive to do it. No, I'm not sure that I've ever seen a bad review from you. Well, well, it's an interesting, interesting thought. I think most reviewers would prefer to write good reviews. We can choose where we go, so we choose nice places. We choose places we're likely to like. Um, but you can't really be credible and be 100% positive all the time. People won't take things seriously. And I think for many years there's been a thing whereby a couple of times a year you just put in a real stinker. But if you actually look at who the real stinkers are, um, they're very, very often some sort of either some incredibly poncy place in Knightsbridge that nobody will ever go to or some celebrity's vanity joint and they're just fair game. And yeah. so you find a place so, like that and you can really go to town. Right. So places whose, I suppose, livelihoods you're not going to undermine. Yes, very much. Very much that. I forget who it was. It was maybe Clive James who wrote it at one point. To be a, a good critic, you need to try and work out what it is they're trying to do and then judge how well they do it by their own lights. And so if a place is going to set itself up as the most unbelievably pretentious and luxe experience and then fails in the slightest way, um, that's, that's fair game. Whereas if it's somewhere that's actually really ramshackle and amateurish, but doesn't pretend to be anything other than just sort of full of love and niceness, uh, if they deliver on that, that's lovely too. And they'll both get good, they'll get a good review. And how do you feel yourself when you're going into a restaurant to review it? Are you, you know, is it eager anticipation? Is there an element of anxiety? I, th I think these days it's just, it's very, um, it's just very businesslike. Yeah, go in, check the menu. It's fairly clear as you're going through the list which ones are going to give you a good story, which rest, which uh, menu items can give you a good story. And you're, you know, you, if you're looking around and you spot a couple of interesting things about the room or the people in it or something along those lines, you make a note of that in your head. And by the time you've got a couple of talkable menu items and a couple of nice things to say about the room, you know, you're not that far off being, you know, your, your, your word count's done. So you, you, you just need to, I think you, you're, you're looking for the, you're looking for the, for the hits and the wins. And then once you've got those, you can sit and relax more. You relax into it. And then often, more often, more interesting stuff comes up. Well, your reviews often contain quite a lot of detail about the, you know, the cooking. So mm. is that because of your own knowledge or are you, are you a reviewer that asks a lot of questions of the staff? 
I would ask questions of the staff if I couldn't work it out myself. Um, but but yeah, it's, it's um, I think it's my job to know how these things are done. Um, it's their job to be able to inform me if I need to know. But that's 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 where that comes from. And I, and I do think there's. I mean, I've always been very conscious that there is a there is a comment that's made about some of the top level uh, reviewers that it was they were writing more about themselves than about the about the restaurant or about the food. And I've never felt terribly comfortable with that. So I've I just I've always majored on the food um, and the and the, the event and the pleasure of it um, for that reason. Do they take long to write? Well, it's a. <laughs> I suppose the thing about being a writer, people always say you, you spend remarkably little time writing, but you spend your whole time being the writer. Um, so what I'll tend to do is do the review, come out, make a few notes. Um, I'll have usually shot the menu for reference into my phone, and then I'll probably just sit on it for a few days thinking about it. Something will come to mind as a sort of a lead paragraph, a lead into it. Um, and then time comes and I've got the time to do it. I'll sit down and probably bang it out in an hour. Oh, really? Wow. Mm. But then that, that, and that then sits there on the desk for two more days. And at the end of that time, you go back over it, tweak it, make it look better, make it look more interesting. Um, and then you leave it overnight and file the following morning. And now that restaurants are closed, what, obviously you're not visiting them, but what's happening to the reviews that you have written, uh, but which haven't been used yet? So they just are waiting the end of lockdown. Well, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think everything's been taken on a, a case-by-case basis. Some of the big reviewers have come back in with full reviews. They've done a load of them, and they're running them um, because restaurants will be reopening in a few weeks' time, uh, and, and, and why would they not? I've been trying recently to do this thing whereby I've started doing re- reviews, three reviews ahead. The reason behind that is if I go somewhere these days and it's lousy, I'll just swallow the cost of the meal and I won't bother reviewing it. And then as long as I've got another one in the in the tank, then I can use that one the next week. Right, okay. Well, that sort of leads to my final question, mm. really. Are there any constraints on how much you spend? I mean, mm. a part of the pleasure of a restaurant is matching, let's say, the wine with the food. But, you know, we all know that wine can be terribly expensive in a restaurant. So are you operating under a financial ceiling? Um, I do have uh, an upper limit. If I break it, because I've gone somewhere really exceptional and strange, I'll either pick up the extra myself because I wanted to do it because it was wonderful or I'll negotiate it back with my boss and say, come on, I've given you two sandwich shops in Coventry in the last two months. You know, it's a bad time. You've got to cover me for the rest of this. That sometimes works. I think the, the wine thing is at the moment because it, most of the reviewing I'm doing at the moment, I'm driving all over the country, um, sort of getting out of the car, going into a COVID secure restaurant, having the meal, getting out and driving back again. And that means I'm, I'm largely not drinking. I don't write about wine in the reviews for two reasons. Number one, I'm not very good about, I'm not very good with wine. I don't know a great deal about wine. It's not my area of expertise. And secondly, I'm literally back to back in the paper with Jancis Robinson. And um, I see no point in trying to compete. So I'm on a fairly short word count. I think mine are mostly around 800 words. If I started trying to describe the wine as well, I wouldn't get half the food out. So it suits me really well to stay clear of the wine, let Jancis cover that on her own pages, um, and then, um, yeah, do it that way. So I, I usually stay in under the, under the budget. And that was Tim Hayward. More news now, starting with Parker's Tavern. Their drive-through is now up and running. You can drive up and take away an afternoon tea for £18 a head, lobster macaroni for £17.50 or £25 for two, or bolognese macaroni, £15 per person or £22 for two. There are other mains as well, and desserts are available too. Just go to their website for details. In addition, Chef Tristan Welch will be having an extra cook-along session on Instagram tomorrow, that's Sunday, at 11am, making a Christmas pudding. The Oyster Lab, which we featured on 24th October, is planning three more evenings of oysters. They're all at the Senate in St Mary's Passage and feature six courses of oysters paired with a sparkling wine or cocktail and the dates are 8th, 15th and 22nd December. To book or to get more details, email henry at theoysterlab.co.uk. It's £60 per head, but no payment will be taken until the situation regarding lockdown is known. 
In Chesterton Road, Restaurant 22's bookings for January are open, while in All Saints Passage, the Cambridge Cheese Company is accepting Christmas orders from 5pm on Monday. There will be more than 100 cheeses to choose from and 500 other food items also on their website. Podini in Willingham is delivering its Christmas Day boxes on Christmas Eve to your door. The cost is £80 per box, and that's for two people. Details are on their website, pudini.co.uk, but it includes Colchester crab, char-grilled new potato, chicory and wild rocket salad with lemon aioli as one of the starters, and the main event includes roast crown of turkey wrapped in pancetta with honey-roasted pigs in blankets and pork apricots and cranberry and stage stuffing with pan-juiced gravy. There's a vegetarian option too and lots of accompaniments and a simply marvellous sounding pudding. Uh, you can pre-order up to 8pm on the 18th of December. That's pudini.co.uk. Norfolk Street Bakery is doing a 12-inch pastel donata tart. Order for now or for Christmas. Coming up, we'll be hearing about Crane's drinks and how lockdown is affecting them. That's after the break. Cambridge 105 Radio. Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover and Lucy Malazzo. It's the breakfast show that's all about Cambridge. We've got the news. National and local. Travel updates. From the A14 to Milton Bode and all stations to Cambridge. The people and the places. Plus guests in our Friday food club. Cambridge Juice. All the new things to do in the city. Our daily quiz. Oh yes, questions, questions with Lucian. And all request Jukebox Friday. And don't forget the coffee. Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover and Lucy Malazzo. Here with a fresh blend weekday mornings from 7. What's in your spare room? Christmas decorations? Maybe an old exercise bike? Could you give that room to a young person along with a fresh start? St Christopher's Fellowship is looking for people to become foster carers in Cambridgeshire to provide safe, caring homes for teenagers who need help. And because we've been working to improve young people's lives since 1870, you can trust that you're not on your own. You'll receive regular training, dedicated social worker support and space to share experiences with other carers. It's more than a spare room, it's a brighter future. Call 0800 234 6282 or visit stchris.org.uk slash fostering. St Christopher's, creating brighter futures. Hi, Pam here. Are you tired of the same old shops? Drop into Fantasia on Mill Road near Parker's Peace. Enter our treasure cave full of fine clothing and exotic homewares. Natural materials, uplifting ambiance, mood improvement guaranteed. Perk up your wardrobe, your home, your life. Dare to shop different. Fantasia, 64 Mill Road, Cambridge. Fantasia.uk.com for opening times, please see fantasia.uk.com. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm free. I'm free. The Olio app is still fully operational, telling you where you can get free food in Cambridge. Yeah, and some examples of what's been recently available include a catering-sized tin of baked beans, some Greek krithiraki, I hope I said that right, uh, two tins of lumpfish caviar, a tin of Waitrose petit pois, bananas, and a huge amount of food from Pret-a-Manger. And there's another free app called Too Good To Go, which offers unsold food from restaurants and shops, often at less than half price. Rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home, rather than it being binned at the end of the day's training. Recent magic bags include ones from Tradizioni at Cambridge Station and breakfast items from the Ibis Hotel, also by the station. As we know, this is a difficult time for a lot of food businesses, particularly the independents. One sector that's been particularly hard hit is cider makers. There have been problems getting apple pickers, there's been lower demand in bars and clubs because of COVID-19 restrictions, and there are also concerns about Brexit. One company that seems to be weathering the storms, though, is Cranes, and that's partly because of their off-trade presence, that is, their availability in shops and supermarkets. Cranes was set up by twin brothers, and I spoke with Dan. We haven't seen a massive effect of 
obviously there was talk of people struggling to get harvest stuff for, for, for harvesting all the fruit. I think, I guess, obviously, as soon as the key workers and that issue must have been solved, but we haven't, we haven't seen anything in terms of demand or supply with regards to all our fruit supply. One, I think one of our biggest concerns is obviously Brexit. So obviously the products coming to the UK, and if we're not in the EU, that might cause price increases, but we just don't know that it's going to be there. So we'll have to wait and see. I, say, I think the Brexit's going to be a bigger impact than uh, what COVID's had on, on the fruit. What has been the effect in relation to COVID and various lockdowns for your ability to go to different festivals and fairs? We were very, very lucky to ensure that our revenue wasn't wiped out overnight. I feel really sorry for the brands that predominantly focused on the entrees with the pubs and bars. Again, if they were relying on that revenue, then they're absolutely scarpered, which is something that we didn't, thankfully, didn't have to deal with. So we weren't affected through that way, but we had a huge entree strategy that was going to be implemented this year that's been completely wiped out. Uh, that's one thing I focused on, and I also focused on the, on, the, the events. I managed all the festivals and, and the events that we were doing, which were all wiped out as well. So vendors will be off trade to the supermarkets and the, the finance, and I do the other side of it. And my element was completely wiped out overnight, so I felt a bit useless for a while. <laughs> I've been looking at export opportunities. Um, we started exporting to Bermuda, and then a couple of other little export opportunities. Vietnam, which seems a bit of an odd one. Cider is becoming more and more popular there. It's all well and good because they'll find the biggest markets. But if there's a small market that's growing and you're the first one there, it's all well and good saying okay, if you have a small slice of a big pie. But if you can have a, a big slice of a small pie that's growing, then it could be a better opportunity than trying to take some space from someone else who's already established themselves in that country. You can always come up with new ideas. We came up with trying to do some hand sanitizer to give away to some um, NHS staff and things we implemented during lockdown. Oh, that's a really nice idea, because the problem is uh, you can't really have a virtual tastings, can you? And that's it. It, it. It's very hard for us to build a brand if we can't give the consumers the experience. It's all well and good doing social media and focus, but you need to experience the brand, and that, that's done through events that we haven't been able to do this year. Do you have any sort of new ideas in the pipeline for next year? Yeah, so obviously, as, as I mentioned, the, the, the on-trade strategy is going to be passed down, so it starts next year. The, the no and low, which is obviously low and no alcohol, which is a huge element to our, our product development at the moment. We're looking to in, introduce some uh, low and no products to complement our current range. Those are our two major focuses, but we just want to try and get back to where we were before COVID kicked in. Let's hope that 2021 is going to be a, a safer and better year for everyone. It's been such a difficult year for everybody. No, it but, has, it has. Yeah. And like I said, we, we, we're very lucky. At least our revenue wasn't completely wiped out. And there was some elements of positivity in the sense that we had more time to ourselves. We, we could do some personal development things. We read more books, had more time to sort of work on ourselves rather than constantly work on the business. So it was quite nice to have that separation of work and having a better work-life balance, really, which, which COVID essentially gave us. Whereas a lot of people were complaining that they didn't sort of ruin their lives and they couldn't do what they wanted to do. If anything, it was the opposite for us. It actually gave us more of a life. Do you ever have conflicts as brothers working together? You would have thought we do, and, and we occasionally fall out about the smallest little things. Being identical twins, we're off on the same wavelength. So decision-making generally is quite easy because we're, we're, we're thinking the same thing. Occasionally, if we, we do disagree about something, we'll often get our dad in to, to sort of oversee the decision-making and give his input. A lot of value to his opinion, so he mm. often helps out. Where is your actual distillery based? Uh, we're literally just outside of Cambridge, so we're in between Royston and Cambridge on our friend's staff. I'd love to know a bit more about how you got started with Crane's drinks. So it actually all stemmed back at uh, university. Ben was down in Exeter drinking the abundance of cider they had to offer down there, and I was up in Leeds. I was drinking anything and everything, but we've always been quite health conscious, and I looked to superfruits compensate for, for the classic unhealthy lifestyle students tend to lead. And, and we sort of brought those things together. So initially we looked at the concept of cranberries um, and fermented those to create uh, an alcoholic cranberry drink. And then through the years, and this was back in 2012 now, but as things progressed, we developed the product and adapted it. And due to the market, we eventually came with a, a cider that was naturally light using super fruit to create it. And that's where it all stemmed from. So really, was it what you decided to go and develop straight from university? This is straight out of university. We came up with the concept while we're at uni. So it's, we've always been quite entrepreneurial. So when I was 12, and me and Ben were 12, Ben tried to get a paper round. He was too too young to get a paper round. So he sort of decided to put some leaflets around and try to wash some cars to make some money. And I did the same thing, but for gardening. I charged myself at £2.50 an hour, earned £80 over the whole summer of working as we graduated we were like let's do this um, we got demijohns and we were fermenting trial and error massively we 
first few batches were pretty awful and we had to invite the rugby guys over to play drinking games to get rid of it but we eventually perfected it over time but it was a massive learning curve because we had no idea what we were doing really you've all the sort of the marketing and the promotions coming up with new recipes new ideas and new variants have all totally out of your heads and have developed from eight years ago no very much Uh, we've done a lot of events as well so the idea is you, you get good consumer feedback when you do events. You're speaking to the people that are buying a product. We obviously had good ideas. We sort of do trial batches, test out the consumer and take their feedback. So constantly adapting to, to the consumer as well as obviously what we think is right for the market. So you've got an apple cider and then you've got different flavours of cider. Probably the first ones were the, the, the range of fruit ciders. So the, the, we've got the raspberry and pomegranate, blueberry and apple and cranberry and lime, um, all, all naturally light. So a lot of the fruit ciders add a lot of sugar. Whereas we don't do that, we only use natural fruit sugars, so it's, it's naturally light. Is it low alcohol trend as well as low sugar trend? Definitely a health kick going on, and what we realise consumers care about the most is reducing sugar. And there is definitely, at the moment, it's right at the front of the wave of the trend of, of low and no, which we believe is going to be a big driver in the market. It's still early days, so you don't know how much it's going to penetrate into the market. I, my personal opinion is probably going to do more in the on-trade than is the off-trade. Time, time will tell. You've also decided to go into other areas, gins and liqueurs, I believe. That's correct, yeah, yeah. So we've got a cranberry and blood orange liqueur and a cranberry gin. We have a lot of cranberries lying around and we did some surveys as well. We said, look, what product do you want us to bring out? And then people requested us to do a cranberry gin. So we were listening to our consumer. And also when we do events, it's quite good to have a portfolio of products that fit all the consumer's demands. Are your apples very much local or do they come from all over? No, they come from Somerset, they do. Our friend's orchard down there that we use all our apples from there. And that was Dan Ritzema from Crane's Drinks. Some more news now. Rosie Sykes is on the Cambridge Sustainable Food website on video and also on YouTube, showing how to make the best of autumn vegetables. La Latina Bustarante has moved and is now at the Grafton Centre and you can order via foodstuff. Bushelbox Farm in Willingham has taken delivery of a new batch of drinks from Watergal Orchards, including apple and rhubarb. Meanwhile, Thirsty in Chesterton Road has a small amount of Beaujolais Nouveau available. Culinaris in Mill Road has an array of wild mushrooms in stock this weekend. The modern table meals are now available from Burwash Larder, order via the Modern Kitchen website. There'll be a variety of meat and veg dishes and they can be collected on Wednesdays after 11am and Alan says they're very good. They're also available from Meadows in Eltersley Avenue for Friday lunchtime collection. Oris and Son have been developing some new sauces and they're about to be distributed to retailers. The sauces include jalapeno nettle sauce, piri piri sauce, habanero chilli and the local stockists include Meadows, Malloy's Butchery and Burwash Larder. Fiona McDuff, a.k.a. Fiona Patisserie, who won the Cambridge Bake Off some years ago, has an online shop selling her chocolates and cakes. And Cambridge Chocolatier Bumble and Oaks chocolates can be bought from Meadows in Eltersley Avenue and on Click It Local. And Aromi's Panettone have arrived from Sicily. They can be purchased in their shops right now. And finally, the Haymakers is open for pizza and beer collection today, Saturday. Wendy Slade of Café Abantu has started a series of Saturday pop-ups at the café during lockdown. Uh, They begin at 11am, so there's one on now, and that's in Hobson Street. And here's Wendy with this week's details. During lockdown, we've been quite quiet, so instead of just having the normal, what we're doing is, is closing during the week and condensing and having something more interesting on the weekends so the hefo pop-ups we're going to be having the baburti one baburti is a it's, it's only a dish made in south africa and it's, it's like a fruity meatloaf with a curry flavor and it's got an, a custard egg topping so it's like a moussaka come meatloaf which you serve with yellow rice so it means that you've got turmeric in the rice so it's, it's a real it's a lovely meal to try so you can have it as takeaway, you can have it heated and ha- eat it on your way or take it home. I know with the bunny chow you had an accompaniment, you had peppermint, crisp puds, mulva puds, anything? Yes, uh, we're going to have, definitely have those again. Um, the peppermint crisp, you usually have it in the tart version, but that's too hard to have it as a takeaway. So 
So we're having the a crumble at the bottom, which tastes very similar to the, 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 the base. And then it's layers of cream and caramel. And a chocolate in South Africa, which you can only get in South Africa, called the peppermint crisp. And then it's got peppermint crisp all over it. And the mulva is more of a warm, hot pudding with um, apricot. Uh, it's, it's delicious, the mulva pudding. So they're all sort of things that we would have in South Africa. The one is more summery which although it's not summer, but people, if they can have peppermint crisp, would like to try it. Well, it is nice And to the try other one things. is more of a pudding. So you're, you're not open at all during the week? I'm, I'm doing, like, for example, I'm open today because I'm here prepping, so I will open my doors if I can. On Fridays? Yeah, and if I'm here during the week, I will definitely open my doors, and, you know, while I wait, I will serve people as much as I can. But as you can see, it's quite quiet on the side of town. And that was Wendy Slade of Café Abantu in Hobson Street. Walk-ins are fine, so if you fancy some South African food, you know where to go. Sometimes it's fun to go digging back into recordings that we've made over the years. And for our last feature, I've gone back almost ten years to the day. My job on Flavour back then was to operate the studio desk. I was the desk monkey, playing with the buttons, mics and faders. The rest of the team would do the presenting and the features – but occasionally I got to do something too. So this is me, a decade ago, trying my hand at a cooking programme. It's the end of November and it's bitterly cold. With snow coming in, there's only one solution. Some good, hearty, piping hot food. So it's with frozen fingers that I point my mouse towards eatseasonably.co.uk. This is a website that does exactly what it says on the tin, and as the site's homepage says, it will taste better, it will be better value, and a better deal for the planet in terms of minimal transport, treatment, and storage costs. EatSeasonably.co.uk can inform you what to eat now and what to grow now, so I like the fact that with every month they provide a selection of recipes to go with the seasonal fruit and veg of the day, and as we're in November, the veg of the month is the potato. Now, I'm not particularly inventive with my potatoes. I'll I'll make jacket potatoes, I'll make chunky chips with bits of herbs and that sort of thing, but I'm really not much more imaginative than that. So today, I'm going to follow the first potato recipe on eatseasonably.co.uk, and that is the ale and mushroom puff pastry pie with spring oniony mashed potato, which for some reason is called champ. (laughs) I don't know why it's called champ, but then this is a segment about somebody who knows nothing about cooking and is just starting out. Now, of course, I've been just starting out for the last year, and I'm still not very knowledgeable. In actual fact, there's only one thing I've learned, and that's not to be scared of trying something. I'm happy to cook anything now, as long as it's not, you know, stupidly expensive. So I want to have a go at cooking things that might inspire the listener to have a go themselves. Mm, Perhaps not being scared is the most important lesson to learn. Now, this ale and mushroom... mushroom... Sorry, this ale and mushroom puff pastry pie sounds like the perfect thing to make for a cold winter's evening. Almost. There's just a couple of things that I have and don't have in order to make this work. First up, I'm going to add some beef to this recipe because this is a vegetarian recipe. And if I'm going to make an ale pie, then I want some beef in it. It just doesn't sound right otherwise. And the second thing is that I don't have any ceramic pie dishes. You're supposed to make this into about four or five little pies. Instead, I'm going to use a lasagna dish and just make one big pie. This sounds better to me because I want to be able to cut this pie down the middle. I want to hoof out a chunk and I want to see that steam rising from the centre. Ideally, I'd be wearing a thick fisherman's jumper and cooking this in a lighthouse with a thick white foamy sea lashing at the door. But enough of that. Let's go to the kitchen and get to it. So, here I am in the engine room. If you can hear all the noises around, uh, that's because the boiler's on because it's freezing cold outside. And it's about 10 to 9 on a Tuesday evening, and I'm trying to get ahead of myself here by preparing all lots of things. So in front of me, I have the following, which is what you will require. 100 grams of butter or margarine, two large bunches of spring onions here, 500 grams of mushrooms, tablespoon of corn flour, I bought some of that, some yeast extract, so I'm going to use a tablespoon of marmite, and ale, light ale. 200 grams of rolled puff pastry, which I'm going to roll out soon. 800 grams of floury potatoes, peeled. Uh, That's what I'm just doing right now, in actual fact. You can hear the bubbling away. That's me just getting the water all hot and ready. I'm just finishing off this last potato now. What else do I need? Oh, and then some milk to um, baste over the top of the pastry. So time's really against me on this one. I don't know why I'm doing this on a work night, of all things. If I manage to pull this off and eat it, (laughs) it's going to be a bit of a miracle. 
Right, I'm actually cooking the meat as well, so maybe you'll hear this. Just bubbling away there. I think that's okay. I'm not quite burning it yet. Good, and we're almost ready. First things first, it says cut the potatoes into large chunks and boil until soft but not falling apart. These are these uh, floury potatoes. So let's just do that. Get the gear, remove the lid, and drop them in. They'll probably boil for about 20 minutes until they're nice and soft. Next up, preheat the oven to 200 degrees. Check there's nothing in the oven. Yeah, that's fine. Whack it on, and then melt 50 grams of butter into a large non-stick frying pan. I'm borrowing my housemate's massive T-Fowl non-stick frying pan with a nice little red ring on it that tells you when it's nice and hot. And in that, I will put in oh, spring onions, and I'll chop up the mushrooms. Blimey. <laughs> I don't know why I sound so frazzled. Oh, here's another good tip for you as well. Never try and cook anything in a work shirt. I'm wearing a light purplish work shirt. I'm getting frying stains all over it. So aprons are good. That is the sound of me attempting to chop the bottom seven centimeter parts of a whole bunch of spring onions, which I'm gonna saute briefly. So save the tops as you will need them later. What I'll actually need them later for is uh, the potato. I think I'm gonna make a nice spring onion-y mashed potato. Now I'm also just cutting up a whole stack of mushrooms. Again, it's 550 odd grams of mushrooms into five millimeter slices, which I'm gonna to add to the pan. So I'm gonna add the spring onion tops and the mushrooms all together, and it's gonna make a nice big frying sound. One thing I am doing with this particular recipe is I'm not paying too much attention to amounts and weights and things, which may sound a little bit odd, but I reckon I've been cooking now enough to have a rough idea of what it is I'm supposed to be doing and, and the volumes that I need. This is going to be very much a kind of play by ear. You can hear the sound of the butter now frying in the frying pan. And in a moment, I'm just going to add, here we go, here go the spring onions. Let's see if this makes a nice sound. No, it doesn't. <laughs> oh, wow. What a waste, huh? Right, that's just going to fry away, and then I shall add the mushrooms, and I will sauté them for about mm, five minutes. Okay, everything seems to have reached a nice plateau at the moment. It's frying away nicely. You can hear the bubbling of the potatoes in the background, and I've mm, cooked the meat nicely. Well, I've burnt it a little, in actual fact. Uh, <laughs> just added a little bit of extra salt and pepper and some parsley for no good reason other than I've got some. Okay, now comes the mildly fun part. I've taken the mushrooms and spring onions off the heat, and it says now I sprinkle on one tablespoon of corn flour. This will apparently begin to create a nice mixture, which when I add the beer will thicken and be very good, hopefully. I've never done this before, of course. And then next up, I want half a teaspoon of Marmite. There we go. Okay, I'll just put the spoon there for now. And then the good bit, well, I hope it's a good bit, is that I'm going to add 300 mils of this beer. That was just my fridge door closing there. Open that up and add the beer. How much is 300 mils? <laughs> Let's start pouring. See if you can hear this whilst it fizzes away. Ooh, nice. Is that 300 mils? Oh, roughly. Yeah, I'll say it is. Saves a bit for me. Possible cooking away. Okay, let's carry on. Ah, oh, nuts. I've added far too much ale. <laughs> I'm just gonna have to try and burn some of this off. Ah, oh, evaporate away. This is gonna be the worst tasting beef and ale pie. It's just liquid right now. Oh, oh well. Still, let this be a lesson not to do cooking close to bedtime. <laughs> okay, let's get a move on. Whoops. I'm gonna transfer the meat into the bowl. This is gonna be my big lasagna dish. And now, let's transfer over the nice mix of mushrooms and spring onions and sauce into the dish. It doesn't look so bad. There we go. And then I will add the pastry topping. Nearly done on the pie part. I've added my puff pastry, which I've rolled out and put over the top of the meat. I've made some holes in pastry so that the heat can escape. And then just did a nice little sprinkling of pepper on the top to give it a bit of a, I don't know, I think it just looks nice. And now let's put this in the oven. For about half an hour or something, I'm not really sure. And uh, next on to the potatoes. And now, just as a final step, this is me mashing up the potato. Uh, added plenty of butter and milk. Again, I have no idea how much, just having a guess at what seems to be enough. 
Um, the most important thing is I hope this doesn't come out lumpy because uh, even if the rest of the food is rubbish, I would quite like to be able to make nice, smooth mash first time every time. And in a moment, I'm just going to add the uh, tops of the spring onion stems to this because this is what the recipe calls for. So should be nice. And now the finished product. Now, the first thing I have to say is that when that pie came out of the oven, it smelt awful. The mash, well, the mash has got the nice spring greens in it, so it tastes okay, actually. So now I'm going to give a quick test on the pie itself. So this is me slicing through. I'm going to take a big bite now. Mmm. Mmm. Oh, not bad. Just smells bad. Doesn't taste so bad. It's quite a strong flavour of um, the marmite, I think. Everything else, it's reasonably even. It's just not that impressive. In effect, there's quite a lot of effort put into this, and maybe it wasn't quite worth it. It's not a disaster. I think one thing I really like is I like cooking for people because it makes me put more effort and more consideration into the, all the elements that I'm doing. If I'm just making this for myself for an experiment, I'm a lot more slapdash with about a 65% successful meal. And this is the... Mushrooms, spring onion, and ale pie. Yes, two things about that feature. One, the website that I referenced, eatseasonably.co.uk, is still online. And two, the recipe that I followed so badly is also still online. And it's at eatseasonably.co.uk. It's in their What to Eat for November section. Ale and mushroom puff pastry pie with champ. I'm sure you can do a much better job than I did. And it's a good website, you know. It's cleanly laid out with seasonal advice and recipes. Well worth a look. There's the wonderful sound of Booker T and the MGs playing Green Onions, which signals the start of our jobs section. Just to today, there's a, a temporary Christmas vacancy for an experienced chocolatier at Dulcedo's Eclipse Bakery in Mill Road, opposite Sea Tree. And the new-to-open Harvest in Mill Road is looking for experienced baristas and shop assistants. Apply inside the shop or email harvestcb1 at gmail.com. And that's all the time we have for today. Don't forget we are here on alternate Saturdays at 12 noon, repeated on Sundays at 2pm, and then again on Mondays at 6pm. There's also the podcast which will be available early next week. Coming up next on Cambridge 105 Radio is Pete Butchers with another edition of Jazz Today, casting his eye across a selection of the latest releases from jazz greats with unpronounceable surnames. Polish Waves follows that at 5pm featuring an interview with a London-based Polish singer-songwriter. And Tony Barnfield returns at 6 with Roundabout as he chats with a Cambridge meteorologist and a senior forecaster at the BBC. The Big Band Show is here at 7, paying tribute to the late Des O'Connor, and Let the Good Times Roll is on at 8. Rebel Arts Radio is at 9, Stagger at 10, and we finish the evening off with Evening Under Lamplight at 11. That's all from us. We'll be back on the 5th of December. But until then, goodbye. 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 Goodbye.